you, Kelly. Wasn't that amazing? Amen. God is good. And all the time. Amen. Uh, it's just good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. Uh, if you will just turn with me to the book of Galatians. Uh, we're in chapter 3. This is going to be our final closing message on the letter to the Galatians. We'll um, close up the practical section of the book next year, which is from chapters 5 to 6, but we're in chapter 3 this morning. Uh, so good to see Cortez uh, in the house this morning. Yeah. God is good. Amen. Uh, we thank God for your life and for his healing. Yes. Are we all at Galatians 3, family? Amen. Yes. Now, I'm always concerned about this side of the church. Why. <laughs> yeah. Are you guys here, Malay, with me? In Galatians 3. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we want to say thank you for your word. And we ask, Lord, that you anoint our ears to hear what the Spirit of the Lord has to say. Yes. Pray, Lord, you anoint this vessel of clay, this broken jar, to speak as an article this morning. We pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit will endorse his word, bless his word, and draw us closer to you through your word. And we ask, Lord, that you will increase our faith. Yes. Increase our faith. That was the prayer that your disciples asked when you were on the earth, sojourning with them. They said, Lord, please increase our faith. And so, Lord, we know that faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of the Lord. So as we sit under your word, I pray, that you build up our most holy faith in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody says, Amen. 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 Um, perhaps my purpose on planet Earth, besides being an amazing husband to my wife <laughs> and being a dad, perhaps my greatest purpose on this life is to do my best by God's grace to make sure that you understand the Bible. And over the last few weeks, um, uh, probably some months, you know, uh, sometimes I marvel at how people can, you know, uh, just, uh, you know, be offended over sometimes petty things because, you know, I will always tell the leadership, if there's anybody that wants to be first in the line of offense, it must be the preacher. <laughs> yeah. Because, uh, you know, I, we are criticized the most, you know. And one of the criticisms I've, I've probably received directly and indirectly um, over the last few months is, uh, you know, maybe, maybe you should, should tone down on teaching the Bible the way we do. You know, 
And it's just my conviction that if I come here and the team comes here every week to tell you about seven steps to the blessing, I failed. Come on, and tell you about your breakthrough and the miracle God's going to do for you and how everything is all going to all turn out okay. And then if I come with these keys that's going to open up the magical doors for your life so that life is comfortable and convenient for you, then I failed. I failed miserably as a preacher and as a teacher of God's word. And I promised myself and I promised the Lord I will be as true to the text as possible. And so what we need to understand this morning is that you and I need to understand the gospel. Amen. And I want to ask you a few questions here, just to put a, a, my finger on the pulse, just to make sure you know, I'm not beating the air. Who wrote the book of Galatians? Anybody? Don't break my heart, family. <laughs> Who wrote the letter to the Galatians? Anybody? Paul, I wish I had a 200 in my pocket now, it's in my car. After <laughs> Can I ask, uh, okay, can I ask, what is the big idea behind the letter Paul wrote to the Galatians? Anybody? I'm going to ban this front row soon. Eh? <laughs> um, Chad? To exist the Church of Galatia. Um, basically, they were following uh, Abraham, Lord, the Abraham law, and they were strong to be. So, which is addressing the church that they should follow Jesus Christ, and that he is our. Uh, I want to give you 50 or 60%. Eh? We'll, we'll give you a pause. <laughs> Anybody else, please? Uh, Deacons, this is your time to shine. Deacons, first. Anybody? What, what is the problem that Paul was addressing in? The letter to the Galatians. What? Sorry, on my left. There we go, Sister Inga. Thanks. They were returning back to the law. I need more explanation on that. Uh, Dean, I heard you. So they were, so they were going back to their old ways, which after a time where Paul was there teaching them the words, they kept on it. So after his death, then the the, the Come on, brother. I think you should come up here and preach. <laughs> amen. Amen. Thank you, family. We'll continue with Q&A next week, uh, Pastor Clinton. <laughs> okay, we are reading from verses 15. I'd love to read the entire chapter for you. We've, uh, we've dwelt on Galatians 3 for a couple of weeks. Um, I just want to give you a heads up. This is the most complex and studied chapter in the entire Bible, in case you didn't know. We're reading from verse 15. <laughs> Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant. He's using a natural example. 
of an agreement between, uh, between men. Yet if it is confirmed, no one announces or adds to it. Nobody adds or announces an agreement between two people. Verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance, now the inheritance is referring to is the inheritance of salvation, the inheritance of redemption. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there has been a law given, which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin. He uses uh, scripture synonymous with the, with the law. That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under God by the law. Kept for faith, which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Amen. Amen. Now, there's nothing better than I can say this morning than that which has already been read. Uh, one of the key uh, keys to understanding uh, the Bible, and remember these last few weeks we've been explaining that the Bible is a single story. The Bible is a single story of the gospel. Everything else we read about in the scripture is supportive. It's, it's conjunctive. It comes alongside and supports and supplements this main single narrowed down message of the gospel. A key to understanding redemptive history and to understanding the Bible is to understand how God unfolds the gospel through covenants. Through covenants. Yeah. If we don't understand the nature of covenants and how God dealt with the world and how God dealt with Israel through covenants, we will totally misunderstand the scriptures. Yes. Totally. There's no chance of understanding the scriptures without understanding how covenants fit into the meta-narrative of scripture. So this morning's message is titled The Promise and the Law, which deals primarily with two main covenants. And what we need to 
understand looking over the Old Testament is that over the span of the Old Testament, there were a series and number of covenants. There was a creation covenant that God made with Adam. There was a covenant that God made with Noah. There was a covenant that God made with Abraham. And there was a covenant that God made with Israel called the Mosaic Covenant, or referred to as the Law of Moses. And then we had a covenant that God especially made with David, a man who was after his own heart. And then all of those covenants found its fulfillment in the new covenant, which was wrought by the blood of Jesus Christ. Are you still with me, family? Okay. So the central idea behind the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Galatians is that there is one gospel message and only one message that saves, keep it from perversion. Keep it from perversion. Don't conflate it with the law of Moses. It is sufficient. It is enough. Now we're going to approach the passage we just read in in this way, we're going to look at verses 15 to 18, which deals with the promise that God made to Abraham, the covenant that he made with Abraham. And then from verses 19 to 25, we are going to look with the covenant he made with Israel through the, the law of Moses. We'll refer to it as the law of Moses. So we're going to look at the promise of Abraham and the law of Moses. And so we might get a little didactic, but just hang in there. And I hope you had your coffee yeah. this morning. Okay. <laughs> okay. So the main point that Paul is, is trying to substantiate is actually found in chapter 2. And what he's saying in chapter 2 is that Jews and Gentiles can only be justified uh, before God by faith. Not even the law that was given to Israel now justifies them in any way. Yeah. Only faith in Jesus Christ and where there was a divide between Israel and the Gentiles, there is no longer a divide. Everybody is on the same playing field. Everybody. Everybody is required to repent. Everybody is required to, to have faith in Jesus Christ. There is no longer a dividing wall and petition between Jew and Gentile. And in case you're wondering, we are all Gentiles. Right, here this morning. Unless somebody feels a bit stingy <laughs> like a Jew this morning. But we are all Gentiles here this morning who have come to faith in Christ. Amen. Our Bible topic this morning is a very critical and important one. Um, we talk about justification by faith. Justification by faith. Why is this subject so important? Because uh, this truth divides the gospel from every other religion, even branches within Christianity. This truth divides every belief system. What is justification in simple terms? It's the moment that God pronounces us righteous. It's the moment God legally declares you saved. 
And the framework for this is found in Romans 8.28, where Paul writes and says, and we know you know the scriptures, your favorite scripture, come on. And we know that all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord, who are called according to his purpose. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, he also justified. And whom he justified, these he will also glorify. This is the framework of how salvation is applied to us in the world. Firstly, you have a past sequence of events. In eternity past, God foreknew you and predestined you. That's before you even were conceived in your mommy's womb, before mommy gave daddy that sparkling look behind the prefabs at school. <laughs> you know, God foreknew and predestined that you would come into his kingdom. That's a past event. Then Paul in Romans 8 goes on to say, those whom he foreknew, he predestined, he also called and justified. He called and he justified. These sequence of events transpire in real time. They happen in the now. It is not a past event and it is not a future event. The day you say yes to Jesus is the day he had called you. And it's the day he justifies you. And then he goes on to speak about those whom he called and justified. He will glorify. That is a future event that will take place. Now, justification, we said, is the moment God declares you righteous. It means that he treats you as, as righteous. It doesn't mean that you are perfect. It means that he considers you righteous only on the basis of Christ's righteousness. He forgives us in that moment of our past, present, and future sins. In other words, the moment he justifies you, he's forgiven you. The, and I, I need you to get this. The moment he calls you and justifies you, that's the moment you experience his forgiveness. Simply, simply him dying on the cross and, and resurrecting from the dead doesn't mean that you are forgiven. The day you are justified and you repent and you place your faith in Christ, that is the day you are forgiven of your sins. Westminster's larger catechism defines justification as an act of God's free grace, wherein, firstly, he pardons us of our sins and he accepts us as righteous in his sight, only because he imputes and attributes the righteousness of Christ to our lives. And this can only be received by faith in Christ. Only by faith. Calvin stated that justification consists of two parts. The remission of sins and the imputation of Christ's righteousness. In other words, he forgives us and he reckons us as righteous. So 
in summary, justification is an act of God in the legal sense where he judicially pronounces us pardoned of our sins and righteous. And how, uh, how the order and sequence of salvation transpires. I'm not sure if you've also spent uh, like, uh, hours and minutes watching uh, people online build these dominoes or piles of cards, you know, all in this, stacked up in this uh, castle, and they, they push over one domino and you get a chain reaction, a massive chain reaction. Have you seen those videos? I'm either only on wasting my time watching all these videos. And it's just, you it's take them weeks, sometimes months, to build a stack of dominoes. And then in a, in a few minutes, everything in a sequence just drops down one card after the next. And in a matter of minutes, what took years to months to build just came down, you know. And, and it's important for us to understand that when salvation occurs, it happens in a sequence. And we have to understand the sequence. Okay. So firstly, he foreknew you. He predestined that, that you will serve him. He knew exactly the day and the hour when you, when you repent and believe in him. And then he calls you. He calls you. It could be during a service, listening to a sermon. It could be while listening to a gospel song. I know one brother was listening to a Spanish song, a gospel song, and, and he broke down and gave his heart to Jesus and is serving the Lord. It, it could happen when you're at the lowest time of your life because God uses the low times to speak to you because when life is you know, all uh, uh, convenient and well and fine. You, we have no concern for the things of God. But, but the moment he calls you in whatever way he does, whether someone witnessing to you, or not, the moment he calls you and you give your life to him, that's the moment that he regenerates you and he gives you a new heart. Once he's given you a new heart, that's called in Bible words, regeneration. He gives you a new heart and you're able to believe in him. And you place your faith in him. Because the old heart cannot believe. The old heart is a heart of stone. So he gives you a heart of flesh once you've awakened to the call like Lazarus. He gives you a heart of flesh and you place your faith in him. And you believe in him and you are now a changed man, a changed woman and you have a new nature and you have now been what the Bible calls in John chapter 3, you have now been reborn, born from above, born again, new faith is in your heart, regeneration has taken place and you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Now the big question is, what is faith? And I said this last week, we have to come to terms with terms because we've cheapened the meaning of faith. Because we understand faith as wishful thinking. We understand faith as some kind of optimism. And faith has become such a common term, flippantly thrown around, like, brother, you'll get that job, just believe. Friends, that is not faith. Faith is a rare and scarce commodity, so much so that Jesus said, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith? Will he find faith? He couldn't find it in all of Israel, and when he did find it, 
He acknowledged it. He said, such faith I've not seen in the whole of Israel. Coming from a Samaritan woman. Coming from a Gentile that believes in me. Faith is rare and scarce. So what is faith? Faith is a gift from God. Faith is a heart that God gives you to believe in him. Faith is a saving response, and it's a saving grace. MacArthur defined faith as this. Real faith, saving faith, faith is when all of me embraces all of him. All of me, mind, emotions, and will embraces all of him who is a savior, provider, counselor, and advocate. It's when I trust Christ to such a place where I believe in every word he spoke and I'm willing to lay my life down for him. Faith invokes the whole man. Faith invokes your mind, faith invokes your emotions, and faith invokes your will. Are you still with me, family? Yes. Faith is a heart that surrenders to God. Faith has fruit. Faith has fruit. It's the only requirement for salvation. He said, believe. And it wasn't that easy. Believing is not an easy thing. He said, we cannot believe on our own strength. That's why he gives us a new heart. Faith has fruit. And James picked this up when he said, faith without works is dead. In other words, God does not require behavior from us for salvation. He requires belief. And so we are justified by faith. We are forgiven of our sins by faith. We are made righteous by faith. But faith justifies, in as much as faith justifies the person, our works must justify our faith. Our faith must bear fruit. Our behavior is a documentation of what we believe. You want to ask me how I know you have faith? I look at your behavior. Not what you say, not what you believe. Are you living a life pleasing to him? You can tell me Jesus is Lord, Jesus was buried, Jesus existed, Jesus died, rose again, ascended. You, know, you can believe in signs, wonders, and miracles. That's not faith. Jack James says demons believe and tremble. But the kind of faith devils have don't alter their confession and don't alter their lives. Cannot save them. And so if there's no change in your life, in spite of attending church, in spite of reading your Bible, in spite of praying, and, and, and in, in spite of ticking all the boxes, if there's no change, there's no faith. And that's the bottom line, because your lifestyle tells us what you believe, not your lips. Now let's get into Galatians chapter 15. Building up into Galatians chapter 3, or looking at Galatians chapter 3, I mentioned earlier, that's the most complex um, passage that Paul has ever written. It's a theologically close-knit uh, section of all of the New Testament because Paul writes in theological shorthand and he gives us an entire history over 2,000 years. 
And he presents it almost in a sense like a mountain range with three mountain peaks. The first mountain peak being Abraham, the second Moses, and the highest peak, the Mount Everest of the mountain peaks is Jesus. And so he deals firstly with, with the two peaks, with Abraham and with Moses. And he shows us how God made a promise to Abraham and how he confirmed it by the law he gave to Moses and how he fulfilled it all in Christ. All of God's dealings in the nation of Israel and in history was a redemptive road to Jesus Christ. Redemptive history is the principal subject matter of Scripture. And Galatians 4 tells us that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. And so when we look at Scripture, when we look at, at the time from Moses or from Abraham to Jesus, it was all God gradually unfolding his sovereign plan in the earth to redeem mankind and to bring his kingdom. Bottom line. And so a quick summary of chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, Paul plainly speaks to the Galatians about their compromise and he shows them by their own experience that the Holy Spirit has been working amongst them. And the Holy Spirit has been filling them, they've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, they've witnessed the signs, wonders and miracles of the Holy Spirit and he asked them the question, did you see the evidence of, of the Spirit's work by complying with the law of Moses or was it by the hearing of faith? Faith in Jesus. And he uses their own experience to substantiate his argument that grace and salvation does not come from compliance to the law of Moses, but to faith in Jesus Christ. And the greatest evidence of salvation he is effectively telling us is the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Yeah. You want assurance to your salvation? Do you feel his presence? Do you get convicted when you cross over the bounds? When you throw an F-bomb, do you feel a conviction from the Spirit? Is He bearing fruit in your life? Love, patience, faith, goodness, mercy? Or is, it, or, or is unforgiveness not an issue for you? Is He convicting you of sin? Is He working miracles through your life? That, does he lead you and prompt you to pray? Do you feel his promptings and leadings? The greatest evidence you have of the gospel in your life and of your salvation is that you see his workings in and through you. And if the work of the Spirit is absence from your life, then you've got to examine, am I in the faith? That's what he's telling them effectively. And from verses 6 to 15, he now builds his argument showing the Galatians from Scripture that faith comes, uh, that, 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 that faith was, or justifies us and not compliance to the law. And so he, he cites at least four Scriptures. He, he cites Genesis 12, verse 3, Genesis 12, verse 7, Genesis 13, verse 15, Genesis 15, and then he jumps all the way to Deuteronomy 21, 23. Then he jumps further to one of the prophets, Habakkuk 2, verse 4, and then he, he brings us again to Leviticus chapter 18. He's showing the Galatians by Scripture that we are not 
justified by works of the law. We are justified by simply believing in Christ. So first he tries to show them by their own experience how the gospel has worked. And secondly, he now authenticates the experience with scripture because scripture must authenticate our experience as well because scripture is the final authority for faith and practice. And what God teaches in his word trumps essentially our experience. What God teaches in his word trumps our opinions and trumps our traditions and trumps our authority because God's word is final on everything we believe, say and do. Amen. Are you still with me? So when we get into verses 15 to 18, I want you to quickly glance at verse 8 in chapter 3. Uh, the Bible says, And the scripture foreseeing God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all nations of the earth shall be blessed. God gave Abraham a promise, but I want you to know that he preached the gospel to Abraham. So verse 6, uh, verse 8 is key to understanding everything that Paul is building in the rest of the verses. Another key verse is two verses before verse 8, which is verse 6. It's a key scripture. It's the most quoted scripture, one of the most quoted scriptures in all of the Bible, where uh, the Bible says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Okay, Paul quotes Genesis 15, verse 6. Abraham's faith in God brought him into a right standing with God. And then he quotes uh, in verse 11, Habakkuk 2, verse 4, that, which states, the just shall live by faith. And this is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament and probably and arguably the most important verse ever mentioned in the New Testament from the Old Testament because this verse implies a few things, it implies mainly two things. Firstly, it implies that God imputes righteousness to us when we believe, not when we behave, not for any moral high ground you put your feet on. God ascribes and attributes righteousness to us when we place our trust in him. When we place our trust in him, we are protected from his judgment. And therefore, we live. We are alive by faith. Secondly, it also implies that we are able to live our lives righteously before him through faith. When we trust in who he is, when we have confidence in his promises, and when we are devoted to his will. Now the question is, why is Paul using Abraham as a model of faith for justification by faith? Let's quickly look at the life of Abraham. The life of Abraham can be found between Genesis 12 and Genesis 25 verse 11. Firstly, Abraham is acknowledged as the father of the Hebrew nation father of the Hebrew nation. That's referenced in Psalm 47, 105, and Isaiah 41, and Isaiah 51. Abraham is also the only man and the only Old Testament figure 
referred to as a friend of God. That's found in 2 Chronicles 20, Isaiah 41, and James chapter 2 also brings up, up uh, the citation. God called Abraham his friend. Abraham was a native from Ur. That's not a speech gaff. <laughs> Uh, uh, no, no, uh, was an actual city in Mesopotamia. And Mesopotamia was, scholars will agree, is one of the first civilizations in the earth. And where Abraham was from, it was southeast of Baghdad, it was no, what's known today as southern Iraq. So according to archaeologists, the city of Ur was a major port city which was near the Persian Gulf, near the Mediterranean Sea. So when God called Abraham in chapter 12, it's important for you to understand that God called him out of a bustling city life near the ocean. And he, was, he spent most of his life living in a bustling city near the ocean and God called him and said, come live the life of a nomad. Come be a wanderer in the desert. I'm going to give you a land. And so God takes Abraham and shifts him out of his comfort place because God wants to bring him into purpose. And God, let me tell you something, God don't mind taking you out of your comfort places. When God wants to accomplish his purpose, he will disrupt your entire life and you will panic and you will go frantic and you're going to be like, Lord, what am I going to do? And you're going to curse the devil, rebuke the devil, and little do you know you are blaming the devil for God's work. It was God all along. God said, I'm, I'm going to shut that door of employment. Just so I can get you to start a business. <laughs> I'm going to terminate that, that, terminate that relationship be, before you buy an expensive ring at American Swiss and say, baby, will you marry me? God, I'm going to disrupt that relationship. And you're going to be all snot and tears. And you're going, to be, you're going to be having a stigmata experience. And you're going to be crying snot and tears and say, Lord, what am I going to do? And God's going to be smiling. You are at the place where I wanted you. You're exactly at the place where I want you. That's one thing we've got to understand about the gospel and what we've got to understand about God in these times because for some reason we are under a strong delusion that God wants you comfortable, that God wants you to have the convenient life, that God wants you to have the prosperous, luxurious life, that he wants you to live on the sunny side of the brow and that he wants you to be all, you know, uh, everything going easy peasy for you. No, that's not how God works. That's not how life works. In fact, the closer you get to him, he says, they're going to hate you just as they hated me. And those who will live godly lives must suffer persecution. It will come. So God will dis disrupt your life. God will dis disrupt the gods of your convenience. God will serve his purposes in your life and he'll do, you'll be surprised to what extent he'll go to to grow you, to grow your character because God is, is not concerned about your comfort and convenience. God is concerned about his purposes. He's more concerned about the production of your character than the provision of your comfort. God wants you in purpose. He's more concerned about your holiness than your happiness. Somebody say amen. amen.
So when God calls Abraham, he calls him out of his comfort zone. And when Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis comes onto the scene, his obedience to God is immediately contrasted with the rebellion of the people at the Tower of Babel, which happened in chapter 11. God calls Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and says, leave your country, leave your family, leave your home and come and, and I will take you to a land, I'll give you a land, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. And in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, and Abraham obeyed. But previously, in chapter 11, these men of, of Babylon were concerned about building a name for themselves. You read about that in Genesis 11, chapter 4. But Abraham trusted God, had faith in God, and God said, I'm going to make your name great. Then in Genesis chapter 1, 28, God commands Adam, he says, fill the earth, populate the earth, multiply, spread out, you know, uh, dominate the earth. And in Genesis 11, we hear the rebellion of the, of the people at Babylon where they said, hey, come, let us come together and build ourselves a city and a tower to reach the top of the heavens. Let us make a name great for ourselves, least we be scattered abroad from the face of the earth. But when Abraham heard the call of God, when God spoke to Abraham, Abraham said, I will go. I will go at age 75, he obeyed the call of God. So his obedience is contrasted with the rebellion of Babylon. And in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, the Bible says, by faith... Abraham obeyed when he was called to get out of the place he was in to receive an inheritance, not knowing where he's going. Abraham believed. Genesis chapter 12 is where God makes a covenant and a promise to Abraham. Now I want you right now, turn with me to Genesis chapter 12, and I want you to read about this for yourself. Genesis chapter 12, it's the first book in your Bible. The first book. You can't get this wrong, family. <laughs> we can't get this wrong. We'll close just today if you get that wrong. <laughs> Genesis chapter 12. Will you there please give me an amen? amen. I'm just going to read, uh, just going to read, uh, read the first three verses for you. I'm so worried about you getting to Genesis 12. I didn't even get myself to Genesis 12. Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There are two kinds of covenants that God makes with Israel. There's an unconditional covenant and then there's a conditional covenant. A conditional covenant is an agreement which relies on heavily on both parties fulfilling the, the agreement. One party upholds his end and upholds his conditions to receive the benefits of the promise from another. 
And that's how a conditional covenant and agreement works. But here in Genesis chapter 12, God makes an unconditional covenant with Abraham. Unconditional covenant. In other words, God obligated himself to fulfill it, not Abraham. He says, I will make you a great. I will bless you. I will bless you. I will curse those who curse you. No ifs. No, if you do this, Abraham, if you know, I will do this for you. And in chapter 15 of Genesis, God now institutes a ceremony around the covenant and officiates the covenant and just simply reinforces the unconditional nature of the, of the covenant and promise that he made to Abraham. And usually when a covenant is made between two people what occurs here in Genesis chapter 15 is that both people will pass by the altar but what happens here in Genesis chapter 15 Abraham has a vision of God promising him the uh, descendants and a posterity shows him the stars of the heavens and says so will your descendants be and then Abraham wakes up from the dream and Abraham grabs two uh, two uh, goats, he grabs two heifers, two rams, two turtle doves, and two pigeons, and then he cuts them in half in chapter 15. Cuts them in half, and he puts them on each side of the altar. And then God puts Abraham off to a deep sleep, and then God comes down in his Shekinah glory in a smoking fire, and he passes through the altar himself. Himself. Usually, usually two people in agreement would pass through that fire. But God alone passed through that fire, reinforcing the unconditional nature of the covenant that God will fulfill his promise all by himself. It was a solitary action by God that indicated that this promise relies on him and not on man. He himself is bound to the promise. He himself is bound to the covenant. He himself is obligated to fulfill his promise to Abraham. And it doesn't depend on Abraham's efforts. And that's why he put him in a deep sleep. Then when we get to chapter 17, based on the promise that God gave to Abraham, that he'll be a great nation, God changes his name from Abram to Abraham. And then God gives him the right of circumcision. And the Bible says that around about 90 years old, when Sarah got to 90 years of age, she was past her cell by date. She, she the hopes of her having a child was dead and buried, basically. The Bible says by faith in Hebrews 11, Sarah considered, uh, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed and she bore a child though she was past her age because she judged him faithful who had promised. And they'd waited 25 years for this promise to be fulfilled. And God supernaturally uh, caused Sarah's womb to come alive and caused Abraham's strong men to come alive. 
Uh, all those under 18 just block your, block your ears. <laughs> and what was impossible with man became possible with God and just reinforced uh, the covenant that God made with Abraham saying, I will do this all by myself. There's a little bit of participation between you and Sarah. <laughs> and God thrives in these impossible situations. And so Isaac is born. Isaac begets Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. And these 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. A nation is born. The covenant God made with Abraham consisted of five things. Firstly, God said, I'm going to make your name great, and I'm going to bless you. Secondly, God said, I'm going to give you land. That's found in Genesis 15, 18 to 21. They're still fighting over this in Israel. And it says, from the river of Egypt, the Euphrates, all the way to the lands of the Jebusites and Girgashites and Canaanites, I will give you that land. And the third, uh, the third aspect to the promise was the seed. I'm going to give you a seed, a specific seed. And that was the Christ to come. Fourthly, the promise also contained the promise of descendants, of posterity, both a natural line of descendants and a spiritual line of descendants. And lastly, uh, most importantly, God promised Abraham the blessing that would come to the nations of the earth. The blessing is, is a redemptive understanding of the word in other words salvation and redemption will come to all the nations of the earth that was the promises in a nutshell given to to abraham the gospel was preached to abraham in what way in what way the reason why paul brings up and holds abraham up as an example to faith before the, the church at at Galatia is for these few reasons. Firstly, it's important for us to understand that these were not Jewish believers. These were Gentile believers with the Greek background. And these false teachers have lured them back into the law of Moses. They were never accustomed to the law in the first place. But it seemed like they had a strong persuasion because they're saying, hey, look, we've come through this route. We've come to the Lord Moses. You still need to be circumcised because you are Gentiles and you, you haven't had your foreskin ripped off. So, so you need to still comply with circumcision and certain aspects of the law of Moses. And Paul is looking at this and he's saying, what foolery is this? Because... The law has been fulfilled in Christ. And so he holds up Abraham as an example for these reasons. Number one, Abraham wasn't technically a Jew. He was a Gentile. God called him out of Mesopotamia. The Jewish nation had not even been established yet. So God calls him, Abraham worshipped false gods. To read Joshua 25. He worshipped false gods. He was though the head of the Jewish nation. But technically he was not a Jew. He became the head of the Hebrew nation. But there was no distinction between Hebrews, Jews 
and Gentiles. And effectively what Paul is saying this is the gospel. There is no distinction. Secondly, he uses Abraham because he shows him how Abraham is justified before God, before there was even a law given. Abraham was given an unconditional promise that he had no power to fulfill in any capacity. He had no power to fulfill that promise. It was out of his reach and out of his skills and out of, out of his means. There was no way he could have produced that seed by his own. There was no way he could have fulfilled the promise God gave him. And, and Paul is saying, Abraham believed God. In chapter 15, Abraham believes God uh, before he does anything for God. And God reckons him and accounts it to him as righteousness because he placed his faith in God. God said, I'm declaring you righteous. you spiritually bankrupt, but I'm going to top you up. I'm going to call you righteous he was reckoned righteous in chapter 15 for his belief before abraham was known for doing anything for god before he got circumcised before he sacrificed isaac on the altar before you read about abraham's wonderful acts of obedience that's not what made him righteous what made him righteous was chapter 15 when he believed in god everything he accomplished in obedience was because he surrendered in belief and that's what justified abraham before god it wasn't his behavior it was his belief and god attributes righteousness to abraham not for what abraham could do but for what he could do for abraham because he believed yes. in him and so paul is saying to the church at galatia the promise given to Abraham is greater than the promise given to Moses. It predates the requirements of the law. Abraham had the gospel preached to him. He believed. He believed. And God said, you're righteous in my sight. You're righteous in my sight. And Paul is saying, that's what's required. Not for you to comply with the law, but simply to believe. And lastly, Paul brings up Abraham because of the promise of Genesis chapter 12, when God said, in you all nations of the earth will be blessed. There was this huge divide between Jew and Gentile. The Gentile world knew this, the Jewish world knew this, the Jewish people looked at the Gentile world as dogs and uncircumcised, uh, uh, uncircumcised unbelievers, and so there was this huge divide, and, and the children of Israel were the keepers and custodians of the promises of God and the covenants of God. The Gentiles were foreigners and strangers to the commonwealth of Israel. They were a far off. Israel was the nation God chose. Israel was the nation God blessed. But when God preached the gospel to Abraham, he said, In you all nations of the earth will be blessed. And what Paul is telling the people and believers at Galatia who are Gentile converts, he's saying, you were part of God's original plan. Yeah. 
Right back to when he spoke to Abraham, he was thinking about you. Not just thinking about a specific Jewish race. He was speaking, thinking and speaking about you. God had the whole world on his mind. He had the whole world on his heart. He preached the gospel to Abraham. And so we get, when we get to 15 to 18, Paul now presents a legal argument to the Gentiles. And he gets into this, the discussion about covenants. He speaks about, in verse 15, how covenants are legally binding agreements between two parties. He begins with the covenant God made with, with, with Abram. And then he shows him how this was a series of unconditional promises that God made, God was going to keep, God was, was obligated to fulfill. He also introduces the concept of the law of Moses. And he then begins to show the relationship between the law of Moses and between the promise made to Abraham. Paul's main point that he's arguing between verses 15 and 18, 18 is that the promise was made to Abraham and the law came 430 years later. When the law came, it did not nullify the promise given to Abraham. And it did not add to the promise and covenant made with Abraham. That the promise of Abraham was still in effect because it represented God's irrevocable will. That God was going to fulfill his promise to Abraham. Hansen states that the promise given to Abraham represented God's perfect will. And that God made an irrevocable trust agreement with Abraham. And the terms described in the agreement was that there would be a beneficiary of the trust, the seed, and that there would be a date of the trust, which is 430 years before the law. Uh, yeah, be, 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 before the law. And the third aspect of the terms described is that there is a condition to the inheritance. There is a condition to, to the blessing that it would rest on the promise given to Abraham and not on the law of Moses. It rested on the promise given to Abraham. The blessing of redemption, the blessing of salvation rested on the promise God made to Abraham and not on the law God gave to the Israelites through Moses. So God makes a promise to Abraham and his, and his seed, which is Christ, which you see in verse 16. That reference comes from Genesis 22, verse 18 as well. Now Paul argues that the promise of the Abrahamic covenant, the promise that he made to Abraham, had a single recipient in mind, and that was Abraham's seed, which is the Christ. And that's why when Matthew's gospel um, opens up, he opens up with the book of genealogies and he says in chapter 1 verse 1, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew was going through lens to show us in the very opening words of his gospel that Jesus is, is a son of Abraham by, by light, natural light. Okay? Showing us that Christ is the fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham. Are you still with me? We're getting there, family. We're almost halfway. <laughs> 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 
So the promise of Abraham, Paul is telling us, and, and, and what he's arguing, the promise that God gave to Abraham takes priority over the law given to Moses. That's what he's saying. Not just because the promise preceded the law and came 430 years before the law of Moses was instituted, no. But because there is a big difference between them. And I'll show you, I'll show you where. So Stott states that God's dealings between Abraham and Moses were based on two different principles. Firstly, to Abraham, he gave a promise. To Moses, he gave the law. The main difference between the, the, the promise given to Abraham and the law given to Moses is this. When God gave the promise to Abraham, he said, I will, I will, I will, I will. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I, I, I will give you land. The seed will come through your line. I will bless your posterity. But the, in the law of Moses, God said, you shall, you shall, you shall not. You shall, you shall not. The promise to Abraham rested on what God would do. The law God gave to Moses rested on what man needs to do. And so the promise given to Abraham sets out the duty of God, sets out God's plan, God's grace, God's initiative, and the law given to, to Moses sets out man's duty, man's burden to keep the law, man's responsibility, man's work. The promise rested on the grace of God, and it only had to be believed. The law rested on the works of men that had to be obeyed. And so when God dealt with Abraham, it was in the category of promise. But when God dealt with Moses, it was in the category of law, what man needs to do to obey. So in, in, in summary, uh, the point that Paul is bringing here is that the experiences of the new covenant that we are enjoying today as Christians rested on the promise that God gave to Abraham and not on the laws that he gave to Moses. Amen. So with me. Now we get into our second section, verse 90 to 25, where Paul digresses. Because he's shown us how the promise given to Abraham took precedence over the laws given to, to, to Moses, which leads us to the question, what purpose then, in verse 19, does the law serve? What was the purpose of it then? So McKnight believes that this section between verses 19 to 25 is the most important passage in the book of Galatians because it helps us to understand the nature of, of Paul's arg theological argument against the false teachers. He further states this is one of the most important passages in Paul's letters because it helps us understand the place of the law and why Christ had to die and become a curse of the law. It may seem like irrelevant information for us today, but if you're going to understand the gospel, you need to understand the nature of the law and why it was given. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So this passage here between 19 and 25 is structured in three parts. Firstly, there is a major question. What is the purpose of the law? What, what purpose then does the law serve? That's the major question. The second part is the supplementary question, which is in verse 21. Is the law then against the promises of God? And then the third part of this passage is the conclusion, 
where Paul says in verse 24, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Amen. And so to answer the first question, verse 19 answers the first question. Where Paul says, the reason why the law of Moses was given was because of transgressions. Until the seed would come. Notice it was added because of transgressions. In other words, the law was added. It wasn't added to revise the original terms of the promise given to Abraham. It was added as a conjunctive alongside the promise until the seed would come. It was added because of sin and transgressions. That was the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law was to expose sin and expose the sinfulness of man. There were over 600 laws that God gave to Israel in the Mosaic Covenant. And those laws were given to expose man's inability to keep his commandments. Romans 3 verse 20 says, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Romans 4 verse 15, where there is no law, there is no transgression. Romans 7 verse 7, if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin, Paul said that. The law of Moses was added to make wrongdoing a legal offense. That's why it was issued. In other words, the normal, plain sinfulness of man could now be acknowledged as a legal offense to the authority of God because God gave a law. It was given until the seed would come. In other words, the law of Moses was a temporary arrangement. It was only valid until the seed came. It was not designed to replace the promise. It was designed to be a temporary instrument until the promise could be fulfilled. And it shows us in verse 19 to 20 that the law was inferior to the promise. If you read verse 20, it says that the law was mediated through angels and a mediator. Came through an angels and a mediator. In other words, when God gave the law, it had a dual mediatorship. It was mediated from God angels, Moses the mediator, and then the people. But when God gave the promise to Abraham, there was no mediation. God spoke directly to Abraham. And then to answer the second supplementary question, is the law then against the promises of God? Paul answers, certainly not. It was given alongside uh, the promise of Abraham. And in verses 22 to 24, he gives us two images of the law. Firstly, uh, in verse 22, but the scripture has confined us all under sin. And the term confined in Greek means to protect by military gods. In other words, the law was given to confine and place man under sin. The second image we have of the law is found in verse 24 where it says, Therefore the law was our tutor. This is also the conclusion. Uh, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. 
Now, the term tutor is, you must not carry the idea of a teacher, because in Greek, this means a harsh disciplinarian. The law was, was given to be a harsh disciplinarian. It was meant to be severe, so that man could long to be set free under the confinements of sin. You know, it's like when you get to the doctor and uh, you're not feeling well and the doctor does his diagnosis and in a hypothetical sense, if the doctor doesn't tell you how serious the condition is, you'd never take the prescribed medication. Yeah. You could be sitting there with, with, with cancer, but if the doctor passes off the diagnosis like, ah, oh, it's fine, man, ah, just stage four cancer, you'll be fine, just take this pulse. No, you need to know how severe the condition is. And that was the purpose of the law because everybody thought they were fine sinning. Everybody thought it was fine doing whatever they wanted to do. And God was like, no, you've offended me. You've offended the Holy God. I need to show you how severe your sin is. So I'm going to implement the law. And so in layman's term, the law was given for four reasons. It was given for our good. This to the children of Israel. It was given to reveal God and his holiness. It was given to set Israel apart from the other nations, that the other nations might also have God revealed to them. And lastly, it was given to reveal humanity's need for a savior. Burkhoff said there were three uses of the law in scripture. It's a civil use where the law serves the purpose of restraining sin and promoting righteousness. The second use is the pedagogue use. In this capacity, the law serves the purpose of bringing man under the conviction of sin and making him conscious of his inability to meet the demands of the law. And then there is the normative uh, use of the law, which is a general rule of life for believers, reminding them of their duties. And in conclusion, I'm finally at my conclusion. If somebody say amen. Amen. <laughs> amen. In conclusion, Paul says, therefore, the law was our tutor, bringing us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. And now that faith has come, we have no longer use and need for a tutor. So the law is no longer necessary because Christ became a curse for us, fulfilling and redeeming us from the law. Christ delivered us and redeemed us from the demands of the law and from the curse of the law. What was the demands of the law? The law fell into three categories, moral, moral laws, civil laws, and ceremonial laws. Over 600 of these laws, moral laws which dealt with how we relate to God, how we relate to him spiritually, uh, civil laws which dealt, dealt and regulated man-to-man -man relationships, and ceremonial laws which dealt and regulated uh, worship in the temple. Over 600 laws for men, nation of Israel to keep. It was a burdensome demand for them to keep all those laws. And there was not one that was able to keep all of them. It was a heavy burden for man to bear. What was the curse of the law that Christ redeemed us from? Firstly, understand that the law was established to place a heavy demand 
on the moral standard of Israel. And this heavy standard showed the nation of Israel that they were not able to keep the law fully. The nation of Israel could not keep the law fully and it showed them that they, are, they have this inability to be righteous before God. Why? Because the law required you to obey and fulfill it, but it didn't give you the power to obey it. Because man by nature is not able to keep God's righteous standard. Our fallen nature that we inherited from Adam is not able to bring us righteously before God and to be justified before God. And so the law showed us that we have an inability because of our fallen natures to approach God and be justified in our own works. And so the law became a curse to the children of Israel because of, of, it, of man's inability to keep the law. Because it was not in man to keep the law from the first place. Because the law provided no power or strength to fulfill it. The law became a curse to the nation of Israel because it called the nation of Israel to do what was not in their nature to do, went against their nature. And so Christ came, the promised seed, and in his grace and in his mercy, he says, I will. I will fulfill all the requirements of the law. And I will remove the burden and the demand of the law. And I will remove the curse of the law. You don't have the ability outside of Christ to obey God or believe. And God says, place your trust in me. Surrender to me and I will justify you. I will give you a new heart. I will give you the gift of faith. Because faith does not come from you. The Bible says he's given us a measure of faith. He's given us. Faith comes from God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. The Bible calls Jesus in Hebrews 12 the author and finisher of our faith. It's a gift he gives us when he gives us a new heart. And all this time, we are trying to serve God on our own strength. Falling around, messing around. And we're trying to diagnose the problem. And the problem is, we have not yet believed. We're not yet convinced. We've not received the new heart. Can we stand? Can we stand this morning? Every eye closed. And I want you, with, with all my heart this morning, I want you to understand this. Is that God is so gracious to us that He knows that we don't have the ability to serve Him. In our strength. So he says, if you if you believe, 
you allow me to give you a new heart, you will find obedience a byproduct of faith. But trying to serve him in your own righteousness, in your own strength, will not make us justified before him. Yes. It's only when we truly believe. We truly place our trust in him. Faith is surrender. I want you to get that this morning. Faith is a surrendered heart. All of you believes and embraces all of him. Embrace him as your savior. Embrace him as your Lord. Embrace him as your protector and healer. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, Lord, I thank you for your presence. I thank you that you fulfilled your promise to Abraham. When you sent forth your son in the fullness of time, he removed the heavy demand of the law. And he fulfilled the promises of Abraham. We are now children of Abraham, sons of God, heirs of the promise. We now enjoy 